in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wings, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my talented co host, Paige Wilson. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Paige, you're filling in for Patrick because Patrick couldn't make it. Yep. Slacker. Slacker. <laughs> so, uh, Paige, what episode is this? Uh, 49. 49. And speaking of 49, not that this ties in anyway, but we have our own radio station. So if you want to listen to me and Patrick and Paige 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, I can't imagine why you would not want to listen to us 24 hours a day. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're sitting here at uh, uh, Baker Hughes, which is now a GE company, so Baker Hughes GE, and we have Jack Hilton on. Is that right? Hinton? Hinton. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And Jack, you're the chief HSE officer of Baker Hughes. That's correct. Yeah. Before we get started in what you're doing now, I kind of want to know your backstory because I checked out your profile on LinkedIn and you've been in this industry for a year or two. That's a long time, Mark. <laughs> yeah. So how'd you get started? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, all the way back in 1977, I found myself in Texas City working for the Texas City Refining Company at the time, building a vacuum pipe still. I was an assistant field engineer. So I got my start there, and then the following year I went to Texaco. Uh, they recruited me. You're dating yourself. And I found myself Texaco. with Texaco, great company, for 26 years. Yeah, so they, they were really a great a company. A good company, yeah. And then eventually Texaco got bought by Chevron. They did. In fact, I was with them for the first couple years of that merger and uh, was in Kazakhstan at the time. And um, was looking, uh, Chevron actually uh, wanted me to go to San Ramon, and I was looking to do that. Very interesting uh, set of circumstances. I was being recruited by the Ministry of Education in Kazakhstan to go to a university. Wow. And be a dean, set up a uh, executive MBA program. And I thought, boy, this sounds wonderful, this part of my career. So I went and did that. Lived in Almaty for two years. Oh, wow. Started having grandkids, and um, grandkids were in Houston. Time to come and home. Huh? Time to come home. And so that's when Baker Hughes recruited me, 2005. So I've been with Baker Hughes since 2005. Yeah, it's um, San Ramon is beautiful. It's um, There's a little town right next to it called Pleasanton. I don't know if you've yes. ever spent any time there. Anytime you want to go buy good wine, go to Pleasanton. For some reason, they have all the inside scoop of all the different vintages to the valley. And they know what's good and what's not good. They're the hub, so you kind of know the area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we were talking off the mic earlier about uh, your role here at Baker Hughes. You and your team have really moved the needle with this company, haven't y'all? Yeah, it's been exciting, actually. And, and y'all have done some really great stuff. I've known Baker Hughes for, for 20 years. And um, one of the things I, I noticed probably about a decade ago, before I started noticing it anywhere else, is that the guys in the field, if they needed to stop the job, they actually did. And, and at that time, that was unheard of because that was during the time that if you stopped the job, and it wasn't a, a bona fide, big-in-your-face reason. You were let go. And so people were scared. And so I noticed that the culture was different with Baker Hughes. That's, a, that's amazing. Well, and, and Mark, it wasn't always that way. I know, I know. Um, yeah, being in the industry for 40 years, I've seen quite a uh, shift, quite a change. Back at the beginning, and unfortunately still today, uh, we still see it um, uh, across the industry, 
people don't have the courage nor the desire necessarily uh, to step up and not take a not not take a risk. It's always perplexing. Why would why would somebody intentionally take a risk? But you appreciate that the pressures that can be on people about having a job, uh, being accepted on the team. Those social pressures are quite intense. And typically, what you find it's the social aspect of the interaction with the team that keeps people from stopping work when they really should stop it. It's not the mechanical piece. People make decisions, they take risks where they really shouldn't because of social pressures. If you can begin addressing those, have your culture of your company, really get in tune with the social pressures that we may be putting on our workers and teams, it actually frees them to then not take the risk that, that they themselves really don't want to take, that they value the consequence of being ostracized from the team even even greater. Yeah, it's um, so true. And that, that people part is always the hardest part to get your hand around, and that culture is always the hardest thing to change, but y'all managed to do it. Before we turn the microphone on while we are at lunch, you were actually talking about your four components of doing this, and I thought this is amazing, amazing, because all, all your years of experience and the fact that you've actually helped turn this thing around here, um, I, I mean, I just think we need to share this with well, our Well, it's, it's a game changer, really. No, it really is. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we, we got into this, a bit frustrated that the game wasn't changing. It was the same. And what was that frustration and, 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 like? Well, it, it, you know, as a, as a professional, 40 years I've been in HSE my entire career, uh, and I've seen a lot of the industry. I was fortunate in Texaco to have seen all aspects of Texaco, whether it was exploration to drilling to production, refining, chemical, lubricants, transportation, you name it. I was able to see everything. So I have a wide a wide perspective from an operator standpoint. And now with Baker Hughes since 20, 2005, I now have a service company perspective. And as a professional in that, you start thinking throughout your career, are you really gonna make a difference? Are you gonna make a change? Is it okay just to have this incremental, we hurt less people this year than we did last year and somehow that's okay. You start thinking you wanna make a bigger difference and we started having that same conversation within Baker Hughes, being frustrated from a standpoint of where we were in our HSE performance was not where we wanted it to be, and we knew it needed to be a better place. So we had to step back and really take a look. And as I, to, to your four points that we were talking about at lunch, you know, when I reflect, um, there's like four principles that I've that I've that I've landed upon, and the first one, when I reflect back is that HSE just doesn't happen. It's something that you have to want. It's something that you have to work at to make HSE happen. It's not magical. It won't happen just on its own. There's something that you absolutely have to do if you're gonna get HSE right. So let me ask you that a little bit, because that goes back to a lot of stuff we've talked about in the show before, where you have to have buy-in. It, it can't come from the top down. You People have to want it to happen, or it's just not gonna happen. Yeah, we, um, you know, when you look at the other part of this, getting HSE right, and you have to work at it, you have to will it, is knowing that HSE is not separate from everything else you do in the business. It's the principle that your HSE performance is directly tied to either the efficiency or the inefficiency, the effectiveness or the ineffectiveness of your processes and systems. People, based on inefficiencies, will do things that will end up getting them hurt. 
if the system is efficient or the system is effective doing the right thing, there's less likelihood that they will have an injury, there will be an incident. And when you step back to say, it's, if you have to will it, you have to want it, and you have to work at it, the work is not in HSE. The work is in looking at your own systems and your processes to say, do we have those right? And if you begin getting those right, then the HSE will trail, it will come. So it, it's, it's really changing how you look at HSE to look at it through a business lens. And what I mean by looking at it through a business lens is not looking for the typical, how can I trim cost? How can I cut cost? How can I make it less expensive to do HSE? Look through the business lens to say, where's the inefficiency in our systems, inefficiencies in our processes? If you fix those, then the HSE performance will come and you'll be a successful business as well. So it's something you have to want, something you have to work at, but be sure you're working on the right thing. And that's the processes and the systems, not on the HSE thing. Yeah, I love that because it's literally a fundamental shift in the way our industry thinks about things. So if you drive efficiencies, that those efficiencies, if they're genuine, reduce incidents and exactly. also increase margins. Exactly. I, and and, and they're, they're interconnected. And where the industry typically gets it wrong even though at the intellectual level, we know that. We say HSE and the business are inseparable. When it comes down to the actual practice of HSE, we practice them separately. Right. And, and to me, if you can crack that code to say, no, they are intricately linked, and if you focus on getting the business right, the HSE will trail. See, HSE is really just a window. It's the first tell from a standpoint of how effective your business is really being run. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And so was the second point. You know, the second point was, you know, that it has to be about a journey and you have to purpose yourself on that journey. You know, I look back where we were in Baker Hughes and I have to say that our HSE performance, we were in the league with the worst performers. But based on our journey, we were able to get in the league with the best performers. And so it's a journey, but at some point you have to start that journey. You know, so going, going from worst HSC performance to the best, um, it, it, it comes through breakthrough thinking, right? We realized that we had to purpose ourselves to stop being conventional. And when we stopped being conventional, stopped being mechanical, it allowed us to say there's something else that we need to be doing as opposed to what everybody else is doing. I mean, our, our management system, our standards, our programs, they were equal to what everybody else had. Everybody was kind of doing the same thing. But we st when we stepped back and said, if we keep doing the same thing and all we're getting is marginal incremental improvement, something is wrong. And that goes back to the other principle. It's got to be business-based. Are we willing to invest in this business if everything you're doing in HSE is only giving you this limited return, you kind of have to have that breakthrough in your thinking and set your sights. And what we did is we, we essentially coined a phrase internally. We said we're going, to, we're going to change how we manage HSE. It was the realization that to do it the mechanical, traditional, conventional way was only yielding marginal improvements. Year after year, we were in the in the worst of the worst, mm -hmm. and we were not happy with that. And when we said we are going to change how we manage HSE and not do it in isolation, 
we realized we had to engage in the broader industry to take on that the industry needs to change. Now, some of that page was self-serving. And I, I, you know, it's self-serving in that as, as a service company, we coexist with people who hire us. Right, yeah. So the culture, the standards, the approaches that an operator has, that carries over. And there were many cases where our people were getting hurt because of the failure in practices of other people. So we knew we couldn't do it alone. We had to bring the industry and, and uh, you know, and, and engage in this process and kind of challenge ourselves. We have to change how we're managing HSE. Going back to it is a journey, but you'll never be on the journey unless you make the first step. You have to start on that journey and then have the will. Going back to it takes the will and it takes work to continue to be on it. Yeah, Jack, I was not going to bring up Baker's past uh, record. <laughs> Um, I think it's very noble and transparent that you brought it up. I think our industry as a whole tends to shirk from the stuff, the bad stuff that happens. And the only way that we can get better as a whole is to be upfront and transparent. Go, you know, we've had bad stuff happen. We don't want it to happen again. Well, it's real, also. Yeah, right. And you know, and there's and there's credibility in that. Trans, if we're not transparent, we will never see the problem, and then we'll never be motivated to change. And and I think to your point, Mark, when I look about how we said we were going to change, not do it in isolation, but do it out in the industry. Uh, we, we did something that was really, really novel as part of this. Typically operators, once a year, every two years, will bring in their contractors and have a safety forum. And the operator basically is telling the contractors what their expectation is, what they want them to do, what HSE performance is, trying to get everybody to standardize and do it a particular way right. as that op- at, through the eyes of what that operator wants. What we did is we did the opposite. We did a forum where we invited the operators in. How cool is that? To share That's with neat. them, to share with them through the eyes of a contractor what we were seeing from a standpoint and being transparent and being fully transparent with regard to the discrepancies we were seeing, the mix of standards, the mix of approaches, to try to gain a common ground. And and we labeled those forums changing how the industry manages HSE. Our very first one we did, we had eight operators attend, had eight people, and we did it from all all the major companies, the eight, and, and we did this every year. And the last one that we did, we had a total of 96 people oh, in that room. Wow, that's... And what was happening, people would call and say, when are you going to do the next one? We want to be there. But the, the key mark, to your point, it was around transparency. And so we formed a panel. We put very hard questions on the table. And we had professionals in the business, in the industry, operators, contractors, service companies alike, being able to share and put on the table the issues that we're dealing with. And, and the momentum picked up, and people wanted to come back to those conferences. So, Jack, i got to ask you, so the, between the very first conference and the last few, did you see a change in the attitude of the operators? Because in the beginning, I bet it was like, we're the operators, you're the service company, you're lucky I showed up. You know, it's, in, it's interesting. I've, I've seen a shift, and I don't, and I don't attribute it necessary that, necessarily that it was because we sponsored this forum and we did this. I've seen a shift in the industry. Um, to the realization of we are all in this together. And 
from a, from a standpoint of being in it all together, we have to work to a common purpose and it can't be different. When I first came into Baker Hughes, I came into an environment where we essentially had to be chameleons. So if I was gonna go work for one operator, I had to do their culture, their standards, their systems, I had to have their lingo. That same work team, two weeks now, are gonna go work for another operator. They had to go do that operators. Every operator was different. That sounds and confusing. It was very confusing and very, very difficult. Every operator felt they had what was right and they expected the contractor then to do it their way. I have seen a tremendous shift now. I, I'm finding that the industry now is in a much better place where the operators are saying, this is the expectation we want. These are the contractors we're gonna hire that meet that expectation. You are professionals, that's the reason we're hiring you. You use your management system, your approach. We hold you to the outcome we want, not the exact dotting of the I's and crossing of the T's of how you're gonna get there. The industry today is in a much better place because I believe that the transparency where we started seeing that that was the problem, a number of operators have gotten on board and that's growing, to now it's more collegial People are working for a common cause. And going back to the point you made earlier, Mark, you know, been in the business 40 years, that never happened 40 years no. ago. <laughs> no. It's, even to it's the a extent, better place today. Yeah, even to the extent I'm watching companies, large companies, share safety data. That just even five or six years ago, you would not have seen. They would have seen as a competitive proprietary information. And I think it's a wonderful thing. It just makes it better for everybody. And, it, and they've actually moved beyond just sharing, sharing the data. Where they're now sharing is the lessons learned from the data which is even more important. You know, so it's one thing to say, well, well, what's your incident rate? What's your incident rate? And what's somebody else's? But when you can start having transparency around the nature of the incident, why did the incident occur? What do you need to do to prevent that incident and begin sharing that in the industry, then the whole industry benefits. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, the, the industry, even though it's a collection of many companies that make up the industry, it's a great industry, I've had a, a, a wonderful career in it, been proud to have been a part of this industry. It's really a collection of individual companies across the entire supply chain. It's now when the industry is starting to come in together is that whole supply chain focusing on something as common that we all have in common, and that's HSE. The power that that's now having that I've seen in the last five years just never really occurred in the first 35 years of my, everybody kind of did it their own. Now they're working more collegially together and more collaboratively. Uh, and I think that's been a big benefit, but transparency is at the heart of it. Yeah, the other thing that you brought up, I think is wonderful, cause I'm starting to see it as well, is that it used to be people would share, we had an incident and here's what the incident was. It was a cold burn, it was a fall, whatever. Now they're sharing lessons learned. Well, this is why there was a fall. And they would never share no. that before. And that is how you move the needle. When the industry as a whole can actually share the good stuff and the bad stuff and the whys. Yes. Yes, then we can fix it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your third principle. Well, the third principle is, you know, you have to be willing to call a timeout on yourself. Um, you have to come to the realization that how you've been doing things if they're not delivering, then you really need to change them. You know, and I, I probably even blended this a little bit in my, in my second principle because these principles are all kind of together. But what, what we found, the big, the big hit in the third one, was 
willingness to call time out on yourself is to say, what are we missing? Why is it, why is it not working? And the miss for us, what we found, was culture. We found that even though you had a robust management system and standards like anybody else, procedures like anybody else, in order for them to be effective, for them to work, you had to have a culture that carried them into the very heart, into the very DNA of who we are as, a, as, as people, as a, as a company, as an organization. So our miss was culture, and we embarked upon a culture change. Um, we said we didn't need any more standards. We didn't need, need any more procedures. We really didn't need any more worker safety training. That was really all in place. That was not our miss. And the approach that we took, we started with our C-suite. And from the C-suite, we went to their direct reports, their direct reports to theirs. And we stopped it at the front line, the supervisory level. And it really is nice, Mark, because it plays back to transparency. What we were able to do is we were able to conduct sessions with the management, with the leaders of the company, where they got to see the connection between their management and an HSE incident. And they weren't generic incidents. These were incidents that we had in Baker Hughes. These were things that we were a part of. People knew these incidents. And they never really made the connection. But they got to experience it. They got to experience it. They never made the connection that they were part of the problem. And so it's amazing when this happened. What it does is it, it gives you great sense in people. You know, you take a lot of pride that you're in a company. Uh, Baker Hughes, really a, more like a family, even if it's a big company, is run more like a family. Being able to tap into being a family, and when people see that as part of the family, as a family member, I was part of the problem. Something I did or I didn't do, something I said or I should have said and didn't, set up in somebody's mind to not do that stop work like we were talking about before, when they started seeing the connection that they had to the HSE outcome, and then they began modifying their leadership behaviors, that's when the corner turned for us. And it was interesting, as that corner turned for us, acknowledging that miss and calling that time out on ourselves, that really began catapulting our journey in order to, um, uh, to make our standards effective, to make our training effective. Because that was the piece that was that was the piece that was really missing. Yeah, it's funny about leadership. It's um, one of the things that I've seen a lot change um, is that leadership, especially like field supervisor level leadership. One of the things they did is, like you said, not do anything. Oh, the guy doesn't have his, his eyes on, right? He doesn't have his hand protection yeah. on. They don't say anything. And if they don't say anything, that reinforces well, behavior. That you don't and have then to wear it. You may have 100 days where nobody gets a hand pinched, but that 101, somebody got the hand pinched. But it's really the last 100 days where you didn't make them wear their gloves. Exactly. And until you realize that you played a part as a leader in that because you let something slip a little bit, you'll never fix it. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. When we started the journey, we really had no idea where that journey was going to take us, and that's okay, right? And I think a lot of times in our business, particularly in our industry, a lot of scientists, a lot of engineers, we want to really be sure we know all the answers, each step, it's going to perfect, it's going to, we, it's going to work, or we won't, we won't do it unless we've answered every question. It's very difficult for a corporation, particularly the larger the corporation, and probably difficult even in a small team, 
to take that bold step to say, even though we don't know where this is going to take us, we're going to take it anyway. Where, where I saw this take us in our journey, and it was a pivotal point. So the first thing was addressing the culture, right? Where that culture took us, we had no idea where it would. But it got to the point where not from the top of the house, but from the rank and file of employees, our supervisors, our workers, they began questioning why are we satisfied with incremental HSC performance, hurting less people this year than we did last year and somehow that being okay. They said, and they pushed the organization, we think we should not be hurting anybody. Well, that's not typical thought in exactly, general. Exactly. And so, but it was interesting in a corporation, how do you make that step? You know, and a lot of people put zero incidents as a vision. They put it as a target. But a lot of people get to that very hard leap, that bold step to say, well, it's zero. We expect that we're going to not have any. And that's exactly what happened in our culture journey. The organization, the people said, it can't be incremental. We have to drive it out of the system. So we took the bold step and went from, we like everybody else had, we had, you know, journey to zero, uh, vision of zero, mission, you know, it, those, those kind of target words. And we said, no, every day we expect to be a perfect HSE day. And that, that launched for the company. So the cult, we had the culture right. The culture then dictated to us that we needed to take that bold step and say zero is not only possible, it's our expectation, which was very powerful for us. And we coined the perfect HSE day. I never really appreciated the power of the concept. And it's now no longer a concept. It's a, it's a heartfelt DNA-driven principle that lives within the company. Every day can be a perfect HSE day. That's no injury. That's no accident. That's no impact of the environment. In thousands of work teams working across the globe, every day, all three of those things have to line up for that to be a perfect day. And I, and I remember the conversations in the company. It was about, well, what if we don't have a perfect day? And, and because we didn't want it to have a negative effect. Well, you know, right. you don't want just sometimes there's unintended consequences, of course. So the concept was if we didn't have one, then it just takes you the wrong direction in HSC. But thank goodness, as a management team, we said, even if we don't have one, it's the right thing to do. And now where that's taken us is across the globe, not from the top, but from the bottom, work teams are looking at what what didn't go well so they can learn from that so it will go well that they have a perfect day. And so in 2012, when we started this, we had 22 perfect days. The next year we had 42. Then we had 96 the next year, 146 the following oh. year, 208 last year. And this year we're on a trajectory of 254. So you never know That's where incredible. the- It's incredible. And so you never know where the journey's gonna go, but it is a journey. But the key is you have to be willing to take the bold step and not do things the way you always did. You aren't gonna, you're not going to change outcomes if you keep doing things the same way. Right. Yeah. you got to work at it. It's about a will. 
Yeah, Jack, so the, the thing I thought was really cool about that, really powerful, is y'all didn't know where this was going to go. Right. You don't work for a small mom-and-pop organization. Oh, no, no, no. You have shareholders. Right? Exactly. And for y'all to have the courage as an executive team to go, you know what, this is the right thing to do, I don't know what the outcome is. That took a lot of courage, especially in that time. It took, especially at that time. Yeah. Because yeah. we were really stepping into the unknown. No one else did this. And, in fact, a lot of people then, and maybe some still today, still are laboring around... Uh, is it even possible? Can it be to zero? So the thing that is, I think, amazing about this is at that time, y'all had the courage to go into the unknown, and y'all pulled it off. Yeah, we did. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, we would have never been able to do that had we not declared a timeout on ourselves and realized that the miss was us, it was our culture, and to get that right. So had we not done that first, I mean, people ask me all the time, Jack, tell me about the perfect HSE day. Um, you know, they want to mechanically construct it. They want to roll it out from the top. And I said, I'll be happy to talk to you about the perfect HSE day, but I can't start with the perfect HSE day. I have to start further back. And where I have to go back is where we've, we realized that HSE cannot be delegated. It cannot be done just mechanically. There are mechanical things you have to do, right. risk assessments and things. You have to do those. But if an organization doesn't have the will and the intent to see themselves, get your culture right. Once we got the culture right, that then that became kind of like the fuel that energizes this journey. And then be willing to, to listen to the organization and do what the organization is telling you and take those bold steps, even though other people may not be doing it at all. And we did the perfect day. It was perfect for us. Um, it's not a metric. I mean, people get hung up that it's a metric. I've never seen a metric such as total recordable incident rate or lost time incident rate or motor vehicle crash rate. I've seen a, never seen a metric in and of itself motivate people to on their own and within their own being challenge the organization to get systems right to where every day can be a perfect HSE day. I've just never seen a metric do that. So people see it as a metric. I don't call it a metric. It's, 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 some, it's something deeper, something more powerful than, than a metric. Yeah, and I, we have other companies now that are doing it. Really? It's amazing. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have a number of companies now who've launched their versions. People get hung up that it has to be our definition. No, make it whatever definition you want. And I've had companies now share with me the number of perfect days HSC perfect days that they're having, which really makes you rewarding because it goes back to the point that we made. We're not only going to change how we manage HSC, but how the industry manages HSC well. So it's a nice reward, you know, yeah, to have absolutely. that have, have that come back. Yeah, it's um it's funny. So off the mic earlier, I I, ax, I actually benchmarked you and I asked you a question very innocently that I ask a lot of people that come on the show, and it's like, do you believe that zero incident? Is, is possible and you said yes which my, is the right answer my immediate response yeah. i didn't even hesitate no yeah and you're right though there's still some people ask that question to their positions of leadership and hs and &E in this industry that will tell me no and it's it's it, you have to change the way you think you know mark you and i were as we were talking earlier about that i was fortunate enough to have been a part of of a society of of the society of petroleum engineers spe where we're really ask asking the industry this question and we called it getting to zero. Is it possible that we can be an industry, oil and gas industry, 
where we have zero incidents as opposed to tolerating incidents in the system. They started that initiative all the way back in 2010. And at that time, as the industry came together, it was seen more as this someday out there, we'd like to think that it's maybe possible, but we more really... More of an idea. Right? More of an idea, but right now we really didn't see how it would be. And they identified a number of impediments that they said in the next couple of years for even this to take hold and become a reality, to move from concept to something we would track. There's some key impediments that, that had to get out of the way. And it was interesting. One of the impediments that they talked about was at the top of the house, that unless the leaders believe and saw that incidents weren't possible, unless that ever changed, it wouldn't happen. That was one of the things they identified in 2010. Well, being a part of this series, we took 18 months, year 2015 and year 2016, to go around the globe into different regions having conversations with the industry. It was regulators, it was academics, it was operators, it was contractors, uh, service companies. Uh, it, was, it was an excellent mix of people. And it was it, it, talking about, is zero even possible? Is it possible? And it's interesting to me that over the five, six, seven-year time frame where the industry is gone, where in 2010 it was more way out there, some concept, there's a lot of stuff we have to do to even have it have traction. It's moved beyond that now to where the majority of people are saying it is possible. We just don't know how. We just don't know how to do it. So the SPE, we've now published, uh, getting ready to publish a paper, mm -hmm. and we're going to go back and we're going to redo those series back where we had them and said, we listened to you. Here's what you said. And now we're giving you a roadmap, a way forward to move the industry from where we presently are, incremental improvement, to a day when this industry can be zero. That's exciting. Yeah. For, you know, for 40 years in the career, you know, to, to be a part of that and to see the transformation. Jack, you're making a rewarding. difference. You're not making a difference just here. You're making a difference everywhere. Oh, that, thank that you. Has yeah, to I need feel him on so my good. show now. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to get you on page all your industry leaders. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Yeah, so this has been really good. We're getting close to winding up our time here. Jack, if people wanted to learn, and actually, let's back up a little bit. So um, Baker Hughes is now a GE company. Yes. Um, the journey's going to continue. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, when, when, when you got a track record, you know, and as you said, we're a big global company. People see us. They know us. Uh, they've seen the transformation that's occurred. The audiences that we have, people wanting to know about the transformation, how does it work? Uh, and, we, we, and we share that. I mean, the number of opportunities, it's amazing. I have CEOs from other companies come here in, with their management team spending time to go through how can they transform their own companies. I don't tell them I know how. I can only share with them this is what we did and go. And so what, what was happening in the industry, you know, this is something Baker Hughes is not only known for our innovation our technology, our service delivery, the things that we do in the industry. Equal to that, we're also known for the leadership and the role that we're playing in HSE. That's not only rewarding uh, to me personally, but I think to every employee in Baker Hughes, it has that. And so when we, as we began having the conversations between GE and Baker Hughes to merge, that was one of the, the critical things. And it was interesting, in those conversations, that, that, that was front and center that 
we're not compromising on that. We're going forward. We're continuing the journey. And the exciting thing now is you take the power of GE, innovation, technology. I mean, you think of Thomas Edison, and then you link that back to Reuben Baker and Howard Hughes, inventors in their own right, to the two spirits of those two companies and what they're doing in the digital space. You know, it's, it, to me, there, there's no way we're not going to continue this journey. We're just going to put it in hyperdrive, right? right? And combining the power of two great companies and now continue to take it for, for, further. So still doing the perfect HSC day. And we're still going to lead the way of what we're doing in human factors, human performance, uh, which is a whole other topic in and of itself. We've, we have what we call what lies beneath, which is our version of human factors, human performance causes us to really go in and look at the, our systems and our processes for what can produce human error and drive those out of the system for operational excellence. See, it goes all the way back to the first point that I made. You have to have the will, and you have to work at it, and you have to know that HSE doesn't magically happen. It's all linked into how efficient and effective you are as a business. You get that right, you get HSE right. So to me, the human factor, human performance piece, what we're doing and what lies beneath is just, it, to me, it's just the next thing that you have to do in this journey to get this right. And, and, and we share those freely. We have videos that we put out there, then uh, they're facilitated learning as part of we're going to change how we manage HSC, how the industry manages. What we do in Baker Hughes, we provide openly back to the transparency. And um, it's just we're all, to, all together in this, right? Yeah, we are together, so it's right, as an industry. And, Jack, I, I can tell right now we're going to have to get you back on the show because that human performance, operational excellence thing is something we're all fascinated with. And very few people have figured out the tie into the productivity and revenue uh, generating part of that. You get that part right, revenue goes up. Exactly. Right? So we're going to get you back on the show later down the road because I really want to go down that road. Um, but if I do it now, we're going to be on the microphone for three hours. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, that's a whole other session. Yeah. Yes. So it's time to start winding things down. This is the point where we do the Red Wing safety tip of the week. So Jack, do you have a safety tip? Was, this happened to me the other day. Um, and it's, it's around being aware of your surroundings. Being aware of your surroundings when you don't think you should be aware of your surroundings. You know? So in the workplace, um, there are hazards, and you're appreciative of those, and you're recognizing of those. But when you're not necessarily in the workplace, you're not appreciative of all the hazards to look around. The other day, I was leaving my home to come to work. It was dark, and I couldn't leave the home because the, 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 the lights were flashing. There were police cars. I thought, whoa, what's going on here? And there was a four-foot alligator what? <laughs> a four-foot alligator in the cul-de-sac where I lived. So I couldn't leave because there was this four-foot alligator. And luckily, it had been spotted. I live in a residential area. I don't live in the country. Been spotted by a jogger who was just jogging and would have jogged over this over this, <laughs> over this alligator. So, so it's interesting from a safety moment. Yeah, you have to be aware of your surroundings, even when you don't think you should be aware of your surroundings because you never know when what hazard what hazard is there. And so the alligators could be could be there biting for you. So it's you know good. look look out look look out look out for the alligators. Very, very good safety tip. Right. Um, and we're gonna roll right over to the Red Wing bag winner of the week. Um, so Jack, see the bag right there? Oh yeah, That's great. the Red Wing offshore bag. It's in super high demand. 
people offer us cash for those things all the time. We don't do it. It's not ethical, although we thought about it, but we're not going to do it. <laughs> well, we've gotten some high numbers. Yeah, we've gotten some very high numbers. <laughs> um, but the only way to win one is you go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put in your information. We draw one lucky winner a week. This week's winner is Billy Arnold with National OL Varco. He's a strategic account manager. So congratulations, Billy. All your friends can be jealous. You have the Red Wing offshore bag. And then we're going to roll over to the LinkedIn group. If you like this show, can you uh, go join the LinkedIn Group's Oil and Gas Global Network. It's the companion to this show, to Oil and Gas Industry Leaders, Oil and Gas This Week, and all of our future shows coming out. Paige, what are we up to as far as members? Almost 1,800. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah so 1,800 of your peers, your Oil and Gas peers out there. Uh, if you like this show, can you do me a favor? Leave us a review on iTunes. It takes five minutes. We're going to start taking the reviews. We're going to put them in a bucket, and once a month we're going to pull a name, and we're giving away this one-of-a-kind collectible uh, Oil and Gas Global Network lapel pin, which, once again, will make you the toast of the town because you have the pin and nobody else has one. But the only way you can win one is you leave us a review. And then real quick, we want to uh, thank our on-the-road sponsors. We have Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system. Great group of people out in Lafayette, Louisiana. If you're in that upstream world, go check them out. And then Lee Heck Harrison, they're global experts in talent management. Lee Heck Harrison is currently helping over three-quarters of the top oil and gas companies with leadership and workforce transformation. Uh, if you like Patrick and I, or even Paige and I, to come to your trade show, your company event, your conference, your school, your HSC meetings, your gun club, whatever, uh, reach out to us. Oh, that be, should be interesting. <laughs> reach out yeah. to us. We have to or, share or, or, or even come to my house and take alligators <laughs> out, out of the cul- cul-de-sac. <laughs> so, uh, so, Jack, uh, man, big thank you for being on the show. This was great. I could spend another three hours talking on the phone. You have a passion for what you do, and no, it shows. And, and we love that. It's one of the things I love about an industry is this is still an industry of people doing business with people. And, and this is just a great interview. If people want to learn more about the new Baker Hughes GE, where should they go? Uh, www.bhge.com. Yeah, and if people want to check you out, I guess LinkedIn? I'm on LinkedIn. Great. Yeah, so we'll put links in the show notes. Um, Paige, you ready to get out of here? Yes. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. You know, this goes way back in my in my Texaco days. I remember sitting in my office getting a report of a very serious injury. And Mark and Paige, I tell you, you can't write this stuff. When I started looking into what happened, there's an operator in a refinery in the control room. He was sitting in a chair, and he had the chair propped back onto a table, sitting on the back two legs of the chair, the front two legs oh, suspended, no. leaning back on the table. As fate would have it, the chair slips out from under him. As it goes down, unfortunately, he hits the back of his head on the edge of the table, knocking him out. So now he's unconscious. This also causes the table to turn over, and on the table is a 30-gallon pot of hot coffee for all the operators that are working in that refinery unit. That, unfortunately, spills on him. So now he is not only loss of consciousness, but he has second-degree burns. The silliest things can happen no matter what you do in your, in your hazard ID and control. 
you know, how do you protect that when somebody's chair slips out from under them? 